We're going to be reading today from Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you so much um, that your spirit has chosen these words and that you have given us the scriptures. I thank you that they are perfect. I thank you that though we are not perfect, that when um, we read them, that your spirit moves. And so I pray for Ryan this morning and pray for his um, his sermon, that he would speak well of the truths that you have for us and that we would listen well and be open to what you have. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Uh, so something important to know, uh, Power Rangers changed my life. When Power Rangers first came out, I was like the target audience. I'm in elementary school, Power Rangers comes on, and I am locked in. The Green Rangers saga had every bit of my attention. Some of you know about that. So, uh, because of that, I started, started karate, and then started teaching karate. My first job was a karate teacher, and I did, I did all that stuff for years and years and years, and what it did was a lot of great stuff, but one of the negative effects is all of my joints are like 30 years older than the rest of me. So um, my back started locking up on me when I was in high school and just kind of on and off stuff for a while. And then, and then I guess it was about four weeks ago, it was doing its normal lock up on me thing and I'm like, thank you again, karate. But then it got worse and it got really, really bad. So. Uh, the chiropractor had done his thing for a long time, but he wasn't going to help on this one. So I went and saw a doctor uh, of orthopedics, and he said, all right, you got a bulging disc, and it's hitting the nerve, and that's why it hurts, so you need to start PT. And I'm like, awesome. This is great. So I started PT, and, and they're doing the first like assessment. They're watching me walk around. They're looking at my back. And so the uh, physical therapist lifts up my shirt, 
And as, as she's looking at my back, she goes, okay, yeah, it's, it's, something's definitely wrong. And part of me, I, physical therapy's not cheap. Going to the doctor's not cheap. And I'm, as I'm sitting in there, I'm like, I'm probably way overselling this thing. It's probably not that bad. It's going to be gone tomorrow. I'm going to regret all this, uh, which was not the case. She looks at my back, and she said, yeah, I can definitely see something here. I'm like, okay, well, that's kind of relieving. Is, you know, is the spine a little out of whack or something? She goes, the muscle on the left side of your back looks like a speed bump. And on the right side of your back looks pretty normal. I'm like, oh, oh, good. So she said, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a while to even this stuff out. And so she gave me some exercises, and they're like, at six weeks, you might start to see a difference. Like, oh, good. Good, so I'm going to have this for, for six weeks. Uh, change is really hard, and I'm feeling it right now as I, I wake up this morning. <laughs> uh, my, my wife is on uh, a little retreat right now. My two-year-old daughter and I were getting ready this morning, and I had to do my physical therapy exercises. And uh, so I'm on, I'm on my stomach, and I'm like arching my back. And she runs over to me screaming, Daddy, back hurt, Daddy, back hurt. And then she jumps on my back to help. Awesome. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm feeling great. But change is hard, and it takes a long time. And I'm just talking about physical change. If you look online, if you listen to podcasters, all this stuff, how do you transform your body? How do you transform your diet? There's a ton of discipline. There's a lot to do. But very rarely do you hear people talk about, like, changing your character, changing the way that you are as a person. That's even harder. Uh, there's a couple ways that you'll hear people talk about it. Number one is like hyper-discipline. And you, you listen to some of these people. I was, as I was thinking about this, I listened to some stuff from Tim Ferriss. Some of you may have heard of him. He's got this book called The 4-Hour Body and The 4-Hour Chef. And then he does all these experiments basically on himself. And he is like one of the most hyper-disciplined people you ever run into And after I listen to him and read some of his stuff, I'm like, okay, solution is to become a robot. Got it. Some people may be wired for that. That's great. I'm not. What happens is if I just go the hyper-discipline route, I work hard, I see some improvement, and then when I fall back, I get discouraged. Man, I've worked so hard for this, I just blew it like that. And for so many people, it's like I can be disciplined for a little while, but I'm going to fall back into that discouragement and the guilt that I kept living in. So then the other answer that a lot of people give in the world we live in is just like change your standard, right? If if you're concerned about your morals, then don't have such a high standard of morals, right? Accept who you are. Just be you. And, And just stop feeling guilty. Just don't do it anymore. And so here's the messages we get about change. Stop doing bad stuff and stop making yourself feel bad. That doesn't last, does it? All of us know it, whether whether we put on the show or not. Like, I'm, I'm trying really hard to just accept me, but in the back of our head, we just know that's not right. If I just lower my standards, I still know that I'm missing something. God's Word gives us uh, the answer for change. And it's not just try really, really hard. It's not just stop it. It's not lower your standards. 
ultimately, the answer that it gives us is God. He says, I'm the one who's going to change you. The answer to change is dependence. Now, discipline is a part of it, absolutely. But here's the deal. Most of us think when we come to faith in Jesus, we think I've come to the cross because I give up. I can't make myself right. Only you can. That's, that's the very heart of Christianity. I can't, Lord, but you can. And he makes us new. He changes us from the inside out. He makes us a new creation. But the problem is we think that once that happens by sheer grace, for us to continue to grow in our faith, it's on us to work really, really hard. But that's not the story that Scripture presents. God's Word says we're saved by sheer grace, absolutely. But we also grow by sheer grace. It's God who is transforming us. Now, He calls us into that transformative work, but if we put it all on us, we're going to still live in that same discouragement. So, the big idea today, God made you new. You can be new. Be who you already are in Jesus. That's the call. Be who you already are in Christ. All right, we're going to look at this in, in three sections, and it's basically just the paragraphs you've got in your Bible. The first one is who we already are. We're united to Christ. The second one is what we're supposed to put off or put to death, and the third is what we're supposed to put on, the character we're supposed to live out. But all of this is based on who we already are, and we're united with Christ. This is verses one through four, and, and I know that Ryan already spoke about this a few weeks ago. So I'm just going to hit a few highlights from these verses to help us really grasp uh, what God is calling us to. So I'm going to quickly read these again. If then you have been raised with Christ, which if you're a Christian, you have, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. All right, this whole concept, it's a theological phrase called union with Christ. First thing to understand about union with Christ is it's a mystery. This passage says you your life is hidden with Christ and God. If we were to compare this to Romans 6, which is all about the same topic, it says that we have died the death that he died with him. And we've died to sin. And we were raised with him. And when we're raised with him, we're raised to new life, and sin loses its power in our lives. So somehow... 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross, if you're his follower, then you died there too. All of your sin died on that cross. And the old self, the old you, is dead. But we were also raised with him. 2,000 years ago, we were raised with him to a new life. I don't get all that. I, I can't totally comprehend all that, but but in who God is, God, the very creator who made us, 
has said, I've remade you. In Jesus, you have been made absolutely new. In John 17, Jesus prays to the Father, saying that the same unity that he has with the Father, so we have with him. He has put his spirit in us to make us one with him. You are united with Christ. You are inseparably connected with God for all of eternity, and there's nothing you can do to break that. You've been made totally new because you're united with him. So what does that mean for change? One, it means that sin has lost its power. Now, some of us don't feel that way. Like, really? It has, though. What Ryan said as we were walking into worship, the power of sin is death, and that's been destroyed. We've been raised with Jesus. The ultimate power of sin to kill us can't do that anymore. And so when it tempts us, we don't have to listen. We have the power to say no. We're going to get more into what that looks like in a second. But we've got to rest in that reality that sin has lost its power. It also means that our desires change. Uh, in, in verse 10 that we didn't read um, just, just now but was read before, it says, Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Okay, I'm going to geek out on you here. The tenses are really important in that sentence. It says, we have put off the old self and we have put on the new self. That's past tense. That means it's already happened. When we're united with Christ, that happened. Who we were is gone. Who we are is something new. But it also says that we are being renewed. Not that we are renewing ourselves, but that God is actively and constantly renewing us to make us look more and more and more like Jesus. And that's where we're going. That's our whole last point, is we're going to be putting on the character of Jesus. So this is the goal that God is taking us towards. It's something that's already happened, but it's also something that's constantly happening as we go. This union lasts forever. In, in verse 3, it says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That's saying when Jesus returns, you don't need to be afraid. If you are in Christ... When he returns, you're going to be with him. You're on his team forever. That's great news. And the other implication of this is that you are united to Christ's people. Verse 11 says, Here there is not Jew, not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. We're going to talk about that more later, but what happens is if we are one with Christ, then we are one with all of Christ's people. And every barrier that we put up through sin or through something just artificial, it melts away and we can be one people in Jesus because all of us are united to him and therefore united to one another. So that's what it means to be united with Christ. Easy, right? I think this is something we're going to search out for a long time as we understand more and more who God's made us. But because we are united with Christ, our behaviors can change. Who we are is constantly being renewed into his image. 
So, put off the old self. That's what we're called to. Put it off. Actually, the language is, is more common in Ephesians, put off and put on. In Colossians, in this chapter we're looking at, it doesn't just say put off. It says put to death. Now, don't let, don't let familiarity with Bible language make you miss this. This is really extreme language. Kill it. Execute it. Put it to death. Kill it. Um, John Owen wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin, which is a fantastic book with the caveat that you read it in the modernized and abridged version. I can't handle the oldie English. It's too smart for me. But there's one that's uh, abridged and made modern. So if you're going to read a book, read the modernized one, unless you're smart, but you do what you do. Uh, be killing sin or it will be killing you. There's no neutral in this. We are actively and constantly called to be executing sin. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's the goal of sin, constantly to ruin you. How would it be killing you? We've got two uh, what you might call vice lists in this passage. Uh, the first one says, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. All of these things can be summarized into idolatry. And what is really interesting about this is the majority of that list have to do with sexual purity. I think God knows what some of the predominant temptations we face are. So he loads it with that. But, but I think the core that I want us to focus on is that this stuff is all idolatry. Idolatry is worshiping something to give you the satisfaction that only God can give you. How do you know if something's become an idol in your life? A friend once told me, you know if something is an idol in your life if you're willing to disobey God or hurt people to get it. If I'm willing to run smack over somebody to get what I want, then I know I'm probably worshiping that. Uh, this same friend is a counselor, and this picture just cuts me to the heart. He would have people who were struggling with something uh, come to his office, whether it's um, somebody who's trying to stop smoking, somebody who's addicted to porn, whatever it is, he would say, I want you to put your laptop in this chair right here. And that laptop re represents porn. I said, what I want you to do is get down on your knees. Oh, there's the back. I want you to get down on your knees, and I want you to pray. Oh, pornography, give me what I long for. I want you to sing to it, worship it, because that's what you're doing functionally. I want you to realize the same reverence that should be going to God is the reverence that you're giving to that. What do you worship? It's destroying you. It's silly. When, when you put it in that context, it's absolutely stupid. And we know that, but it destroys us over and over and over again. What are you worshiping? But here's the other thing. It destroys our relationships. The second list has a lot more to do with our relationships. It says um, in verse 8, But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Don't lie to one another. All of these things happen in relationship. 
you can't lie, well, maybe, I don't know, you can't lie unless there's somebody else around. You can't slander unless it's in relationship to another person. If you want to destroy this church, put all of those things into practice. Lie behind people's backs. Slander people. Let anger just fester in you constantly. You will absolutely destroy a community that way. You know what it feels like, right? You know what it feels like when it's coming towards you. You know what that stab in the back feels like. It's utterly destructive. And if we're being renewed into the image of Christ, that stuff doesn't fit. Jesus is renewing all things, giving us hope and a future. He's uniting us together. These things divide. So we're called to put all these things away. So how do you do? Oh, well, one more thing. Verse 11 that we we read here, it says, here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. If we're united with him, every barrier has to disappear. The very roots of racism, discrimination, prejudice, and injustice are all there in verse 8. That's not what the people of God look like. We have to be pursuing these things. So what does it look like? It looks like taking it really seriously. Taking it just as seriously as Paul does when he says, kill it. Put it to death. We've got to realize how much it's destroying you. And not just the big sins. Usually, if there's an addictive struggle in our life, all of our focus goes to that. And we don't realize how much slander is in our heart. Because we're just so zeroed in on this is the one thing that's destroying me. And I think the devil loves to do that to us. Yeah, yeah, you focus on that one while you destroy all your relationships over here because you lie constantly to people. (laughs) We've got to be paying attention to our whole lives and realizing even the little things are also destroying us and others. Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Respectable Sins. Obviously, the title's meant to be ironic. But there are things that our culture says, you know, pride isn't that bad. I mean, how are you going to have any self-confidence if you don't have some pride, right? And we can take what God says is destroying you and say, that's not that bad. You'll be all right, right? But that's not true. We take all of these things that are not massively and obviously destructive, these addictive struggles, and we say, all the other stuff, it's not, you'll be all right. But that's not the case. Uh, We've got to discipline ourselves. I think that is a part of this. Matthew 5, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says to his people, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Okay, obviously he's speaking metaphorically, but he's speaking with extreme language. If your left hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better that you go into heaven missing a hand than that you condemn yourself by walking continually in the sin that your hand is causing you. So Jesus speaks with just, extreme, just as extreme language, and I think part of that cutting off means discipline. Do you need to buy some blocking software for your computer? Do you need to get a flip phone? You're like, come on, like that's a step too far, isn't it? I don't think it is. 
what does it look like? What's the struggle in your life that is just so easy for you to run to that you've got to put up mile-high barriers to keep yourself away? Be disciplined. Take extreme measures. Um, John 10, I mentioned it before. It says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I think sometimes the way we treat sin is like somebody kicks down the door to our house, walks straight up to us and puts a gun to our head and says, give me literally everything you have or I'll kill you. And we're like, "Eh, I'll be all right. I feel like I can live with this. It's not going to be too big a deal. It's crazy, but that's what's happening. The evil one is promising to kill you, and we're like, yeah, it'll be okay. Take it seriously. Understand that these things are destroying you. Now, now here's something. We're called to obey God. We're called to obey God just because he's God. But here's the thing. Obedience to God also means the flourishing of people and communities. When we sin, it destroys people and communities. So I'm not just telling you, obey because it'll be better for you. I'm also telling you, obey because God says it. But when we obey what God says, in normal circumstances, our lives really are better. We don't have to live in the hiding and the shame and the guilt. We can live in the freedom that His forgiveness actually brings to us. So yes, we obey because he calls us to, but we also know that obedience brings flourishing, and we trust God for that. I think sin's greatest deceitfulness is getting you to believe that it's not going to hurt anything. We can't buy that lie. Look at the consequences of sin and be scared. I think that's okay. I think God has allowed the consequences of sin in our lives to hurt us in a way that will make us never want to go back. Hate your sin. But here's the deal. If I ended here, this would be a really, really moralistic sermon. Yes, you're called to be disciplined. Yes, you're called to put sin to death. But that's not the whole story. That's only half the coin. We've got to flip the coin over. Um, If I told you uh, to change your shoes and you walked out and you took your shoes off and you walked back in here barefoot, you would not have changed your shoes. You would have taken your shoes off. But, But God never calls us to put off without also calling us to put on. So we're called to put something on. This is the heart of repentance. It's not just stop sinning. It's stop sinning and turn to Jesus and find in him the forgiveness and the power to fight that sin. So when we're putting on, we're putting on the very character of Jesus. Be who you already are in Christ. That in Christ is so important. Behavior change does take discipline. But the discipline is not the starting place. Discipline is the result of being changed. Uh, I've got this little diagram that I think can be really, really helpful here. This is, again, that same counselor that helped me out a lot. If that bottom line is, is kind of the baseline, it's our heart's motivation. Most of us live in this constant cycle where I want to change my behavior. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. So I want to look like that, all right? 
time goes by, our behavior kind of comes back to where our motivation actually is. Then it happens again, and what happens is we get this tension. It's almost like there's a spring from the peak of that arrow spiraling all the way down to the base, this tension that's constantly pulling us back down to where our heart motivation really is. So in order for change to actually happen, what's got to happen is our, our baseline motivation has to change. And how do we change that baseline motivation? We fall in love. You see, just the behavior change, that's, that's the first point. That's the discipline point. Yes, you have to be disciplined. But two, we have to have our hearts radically falling in love with Jesus. So how do we do that? I think this passage shows us exactly how we do it. Um, all of the virtues that we're called to put on in, these passage, in this passage are the virtues that Christ has already demonstrated to you. All right? He's not calling you just to discipline yourself and be good. He's calling you to recognize everything that I'm calling you to, I did with you first. So I want to run through these quickly. Put on then compassion. Jesus, when he looks at people, he looks at the crowds and he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He sees people for who we really are, desperately in need. Um, to geek out on you for a second, the Greek word for compassion, I remember I was translating this for one of my first sermons after I learned Greek. And I'm translating it and I get to the word compassion and I'm trying to translate it and I'm getting really confused because all I can come up with is intestines. It says, and Jesus had intestines for them. And I'm like, what's going on here? The Greek way of thinking for the word compassion is where do you feel it physically? You know, you get that phone call with bad news. Your stomach, you just feel it in the pit of your stomach and it just turns. That's the Greek understanding of the word compassion. Gut-wrenching, literally. That's why they use the word intestines, because that's where you feel it. So when Jesus looks at the crowds, it's not like, oh man, I should really help out. It's when he looks at us, when he looks at me, apart from him, his stomach turns and he aches for us. Have compassion, Jesus says, because my compassion is for you kindness. Romans 2, in the middle of verse 4, says God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. God doesn't want to shame us in our sin. He wants us to run as hard as we can to his wide open arms. While we were still sinners, he died for us. When God calls us to be kind, it's because he's been kind to the ultimate level for us humility and meekness. We could read all of Philippians chapter 2, but I'm just going to pick out a little segment here. And being found in human form, the God of the universe, the one who created everything, became like his creation. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself so that we would be united with him. Patience. 
1 Timothy 1.16, Paul's talking about how big a sinner he is. And so I can read this very much in line with him. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Our sin deserves punishment like that. But Jesus is patient for us to embrace him at his cross. I think the ultimate culmination of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience is his forgiveness. As Jesus is on the cross because of my sin, because of our sin, he looks out at the people in front of him. He looks out at the people through all of history who would follow him. And he puts into words the actions that he's currently living out. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus looks at all the stupid stuff that we do that constantly destroys us and says, forgive them, even when we are his enemies. But the heart behind every act of forgiveness is his love. 1 John 4, 9 through 11. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We're not his because we had it all together. We don't continue to be his just because we get it all together. We're his because he paid the penalty of all of our sin so that it wouldn't destroy us ultimately. We're his. And he is the one who's making us new. We put all of this stuff on not by willpower, We put it on by remembering who we are and who he is. Remember, with each of these things we're supposed to put on, he took every single first step towards us so that we could take those same first steps towards other people. This is what changes your motivation. It's not just trying harder to be better. It's remembering how deeply we are loved. And as we reflect on how we were loved when we were enemies, it makes it so much easier to love our enemies because he has taken those first steps towards us. Patience is no longer just an act of willpower and biting your tongue. It's an act of remembering the patience of God in the gospel. Forgiveness is no longer just a barter system with other people. It's a free gift because it's been freely given to us. So you can easily see how this kind of gospel-motivated change affects the way that we live in community. Verse 15 says, And the peace of Christ will rule in our hearts. That's what happens. We experience the peace of Christ to which we were called in one body and to be thankful so as the peace of Christ rules in our hearts, that peace begins to rule in the communities we, lived in, we live in. So as united people, we relate to each other by spurring one another on towards conformity in Jesus' image. 
This is what breaks down all the barriers relationally, racially, culturally, when the peace of Christ reigns in our hearts as we remember his gospel. So here's the application for this whole thing. It gives it to us in verse 16. It says, And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It is really easy for us to forget the truth of the gospel, to forget who we are, to forget that we're united with him. But we're called to let God's word dwell richly in us. That means that God's word is not just a self-help book. It's not just steps to be a better person. It's transformative by the power of the Spirit, but it also helps us fall more deeply in love. We've got to remember So spend time in his word, memorize it, meditate on it, sing it, soak in it, not just to check off a checkbox that you had your quiet time, but to fall more deeply in love with Jesus. That's what brings change. And remind each other, I love that this passage doesn't just leave us with this little personal worship plan. This passage says, let the word of heart the word of God dwell in your heart richly. And then it calls us to corporate worship, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. So that means we need accountable relationships with other people. It means that we don't just deal with our sin by ourselves. It's that we deal with our sin with other people. And it's not just other people berating us for our sin. It's other people calling us out of the destructive behaviors, but also calling us to fall more in love with Jesus than we are with that sin. Our accountability has got to be centered on the gospel. Life-giving, freedom-offering, not just guilt-inducing. But it also calls us to corporate worship. (laughs) Do you know that in a lot of the songs we were singing this morning, we were intended by God to be singing to one another? God intends that your voice reminds me of what's true. We sing praise to God And we recount the story of who we are to one another. All of you, as your voices are united, we are mutually reminding each other of what the truth is. That's helping us let the word of God dwell richly in our hearts. (laughs) Do you dislike a song? Do you you not like the beat or the rhythm or how it's sung? Maybe, Maybe the thing that the person next to you most needs is hear that song on your lips. Our worship is a service to God, but it's also a service to the people around us, and a service to our own hearts. And what better way for us to remember the truth of the gospel, let the word of God dwell richly in our hearts than the table. We're going to come to the table in just a second. But the end of this passage says that our whole life is to be lived before God. This isn't just a spiritual act of remembrance. This is a remembrance in everything that we do, in word or deed, when you're at work, when you're at home, when you're in relationships. Let the word of God dwell in you richly, and it transforms everything. We've got the power to change. And it's not just try harder. It's fall deeply in love. Remember the gospel. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much. Uh, that you have given us your word. And Lord, we thank you that when your word dwells richly in us, it transforms us more and more into the image of Jesus. Lord, would you help us as a people 
uh, not just be disciplined for discipline's sake, but would you help us fight sin that destroys us? Would you help us enjoy the grace of our Lord Jesus in a way that helps us to hate our sin more and love you more deeply? We beg you for this. You have made us new. Help us to live like the new people you've called us to be. We pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.